Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1002. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. This is the living and active word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father, we come before you now asking for your Holy Spirit to be with us and to be at work in us through your word that our minds might be open to understand, that our hearts might be open to receive, and that our wills might be strengthened to obey, that we might bring forth the fruit of your word in abundance to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look again at the first verse. The author says, Therefore, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach God's rest. Let us fear. That is the principal charge in the text that is before us this morning. And it leads the author to say in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter his rest. And so we are to fear and we are to strive. That is what we are being called to this morning. At first glance, it's it's hard to reconcile this with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. 
Jesus came as the King of Peace. He came as the the King who brings salvation to His people, the one who delivers, even as we read earlier in Hebrews, all who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. They were delivered through the conquering King. And this is why Jesus Himself said in Matthew 11, even as we heard in Sunday school this morning, Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So how is a call to fear and a call to strive compatible with the promise of rest? That's the question that we have to wrestle with this morning. Because while there is obviously a kind of fearful striving that is contrary to the gospel, these verses make it clear that there is also a kind of fearful striving that is right and good for God's people. Now admittedly, we don't hear much about that kind of fearful striving in the evangelical church today. In our circles in particular, talk of fearful striving is immediately assumed to be anti-gospel. It is immediately assumed to be anti-grace. If you are fearful or if you are striving, it is because you don't get it. It's because you don't get the gospel. It's because you don't understand grace. And there's a sense in which that is true. But again, these verses make it clear that that is not always the case. And it's not just this one passage. Jesus himself commanded us to fear. Even as he commanded us not to fear the one who can kill your body, he called us to fear the one who has authority over our souls. And he called us to a sort of striving when he said that we are to zealously pursue after righteousness. In fact, he commanded us that if if our right hand is a hindrance, if our right eye is a hindrance, if these things lead us into sin, we are to gouge them out and cut them off. That is certainly striving. That is certainly zealous effort. And similarly, Paul, the, the apostle of grace himself, he described himself this way. He said, I toil, struggling, I toil, I I struggle with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. And elsewhere he could even say, I worked harder than any of them. And he even spoke of a kind of fear when he said that I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. And so there is a kind of fear, and there is a kind of striving that is right and good. A fear and striving that we are actually called to. And so this morning, we need to seek to understand what that is and what it isn't. And so to help us get there, to help us better understand what this passage is actually calling us to, I want to do three things this morning. First, I I want us to consider what is meant by the promise of God's rest. What is it that is being promised? Second, I want us to consider what it means to enter into that rest. What is is required if we would enter into the rest that is promised? And third, I want us to consider what is actually meant by the fear of failing to reach it. What is it exactly that we are being called upon 
to fear. I think if we, if we understand these three points, then we will be in a position to understand how we can develop this fear that we are being called to, this, this gospel fear. And so let's, let's begin with the first question. What is the promise of God's rest? That mention of God's rest takes us back to Genesis 2. In fact, that's the, the passage that the author quotes here. In the opening verses of Genesis chapter 2, we are told that after God had completed his work of creation, when the heavens and the earth were finished, on that day, the the seventh day, he rested. It's the verse that he quotes in in verse 4 here in Hebrews. Now we must realize that God did not rest because he was exhausted. He wasn't even tired, the way that that we might be worn out after a long week of work. Remember what the prophet Isaiah says. He, He says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Similarly, the the psalmist says, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And so we may be certain that that God was not tired or worn out. He was not resting because he was exhausted. But rather, God rested because his work was finished. He rested because the work that he had set out to do was complete. Everything was now as he intended it to be. Remember what we're told in the the last verses of of chapter 1. We're we're told that God looked over all that he had made in the six days of creation. And he, he looked at everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And that's vital for us understanding what this rest is all about. God's rest points to a creation at peace. A creation marked by perfect shalom. A a creation that manifests perfectly and, and completely and without defect the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. The chaos of the waters that cover the earth in, in the beginning, it had been subdued. Creation had been formed and creation had been filled Righteousness and peace had been established. Things were as they are supposed to be. And as God looks upon the the perfect creation, He rests satisfied with what He had accomplished. And of course what we realize as we read this and as we look at God at rest is that we were meant to live in the shadow of that rest. We were meant to live in that perfect creation. We were meant to live in that world at peace. Now, obviously, we don't live there. We do not inhabit a a creation marked by perfect shalom. We we know this from firsthand experience. And Scripture tells us why we don't live there. We don't live there because of the, the sin of our first parents. As we read in Genesis chapter 3, and as Paul affirms for us later in in Romans chapter 5, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that, that tree that they had been commanded not to eat of, 
When they ate that forbidden fruit, they brought sin and and misery and death into God's good creation. All things came under His his curse. The, The creation was subjected to futility. And so now we live in a world that is marred and polluted and perverted by sin and death. A world subject to futility and decay. A world where nothing is as it is supposed to be. But this world that we live in, it is not the world we were originally meant to live in. We were created for a world at peace. We were created to live in the kingdom of God. We were created to dwell in the shadow of God's perfect rest. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us this morning is that the promise of returning to that rest, the promise of returning to to shalom, to peace, to the goodness of, of the original creation, the promise of returning to that rest still stands. The promise he's referring to, of course, is the promise of the gospel. The promise of the, of the gospel is, is sometimes called the, the gospel of salvation. Sometimes it is called the, the promise of eternal life. Sometimes it is called the promise of, of glory. Here it is, it is called the, the promise of rest. But all of these terms, all of these phrases refer to the promise of the gospel. The, the gospel that says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. The gospel that says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The gospel that says, Christ is our eternal hope of glory. The gospel that says, come unto me and I will give you rest. See, that is the promise of the gospel. And it is vital that we understand that it is vital that we see what is truly being offered to us in the Gospel of God concerning His Son. Because it is this promise, this promise of rest, this promise of eternal life, this this promise of salvation that is unlocked by Jesus' work of redemption. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on purpose. He rode into Jerusalem not to be served, but to serve. It's why He rode on a donkey. He came humbly Because he was not coming to be served, but to serve and to give his life as the ransom for many. Life in the promised land for the people of Israel when he he brought them out of Egypt was, was meant to be sort of a foreshadow of what is promised to the people of God. It was meant to be where the people of Israel who had been slaves for 400 years would begin to experience something of God's rest. God told them if they would live in the land as His people, then they would enjoy His protection and they would enjoy His provision. The land would be a land flowing with with milk and honey. They would not run from any enemy. They would enjoy abundant harvests. This was to be a a, a foretaste of heaven on earth. It was to be a a foretaste of, of living again in God's rest. But it was never all that was promised. It was always only a token. It was always only a foreshadow. That's what the author is talking about in in verse 8. He says, if Joshua had given them rest, 
God wouldn't have spoken about a future rest. The the rest Joshua gave the people of Israel was always and only to be provisional, but it was a foretaste. It was a, a picture of what is being promised to us in Christ. In Christ, we are being called to to eternal life in the new heavens, in the new earth, undefiled by sin, unmarred by our rebellion. We're being called back into the kingdom of God, out of the dominion of the evil one, into the kingdom of the beloved Son. This is what is promised to us in the gospel. This is the good news. That we are sojourners and exiles in this present evil age. But that God is bringing us to Canaan. He's bringing us to the promised land. He's bringing us to the kingdom of God. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land of perfect peace and righteousness. That's what Jesus rode into Jerusalem to accomplish. He came as your king bringing salvation to his people. He came to lay down His life that we who were under the curse might be rescued from the curse and might be brought into the abundance of God's blessing. That's why the prophet Zechariah said, Rejoice! Your King comes to you bringing salvation. That's why the people cried, Rejoice! Hosanna! In the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We who were excluded because of our sin, we who were far off, we who were separated from Christ and without hope in this world have been brought near. We have been reconciled to the Father. We have been adopted into his family. We are now brothers of the beloved Son. We now have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. That is what is promised to us in the gospel. That is what the author means when he says that the promise of entering his rest still stands. But of course, we must see that Simply hearing the promise is not enough. We must enter into the rest that is offered. We must enter, how? By responding to the promise with faith. It's the author's point in, in verses 2 and 3. Look again at what he, that he says. He says, for good news came to us just as to them. Who's he talking about? He's talking about that original generation that was brought out of Egypt. Good news was proclaimed to them. Now there's a whole sermon there because uh, this is is proof that there's one gospel of grace from the beginning to the end of the scriptures. The same gospel that's been proclaimed to us was proclaimed to them. But notice, the message they heard did not benefit them. Simply having the gospel bounce off their ears was not enough. Simply hearing the good news was not enough. It did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They did not believe. And their unbelief was demonstrated again and again and again as they put the Lord to the test. An unbelief that came to full harvest, if I can use that language. 
on the borders of Canaan when they refused to go in. They would not believe. They would not entrust themselves to God. And therefore, because of their unbelief, which resulted in disobedience, the Gospel did not benefit them. They did not enter into the promised rest. God is telling the Hebrews, and he's, He's telling us that simply hearing the promise is not enough. We must respond with faith. And so what is faith? What is this faith that is called for? What is this faith by which we enter into the rest that is offered to us? I think our shorter catechism gives a wonderful definition of faith when it defines it as receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. Faith is receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone as He is offered to us in the Gospel. There's there's three things that I think we need to see in that definition. First, faith entails receiving. It entails receiving the the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Receiving the, the truths that are proclaimed about God and His Son. It means believing that there is one true and living God who is the maker of all things. It means believing that we are rebels against that God and that we are justly deserving of His wrath because we have not honored Him as God. It means believing that because we are dead in our sins, there's nothing that we can do to atone ourselves, to atone for ourselves, and to, to reconcile ourselves to Him. But of course it means believing that He is rich and mercy. And because of the great love with which He has loved us, He sent His Son to take on human flesh. And not only to to live a perfect life, but then to lay down that life as the ransom for our redemption. So that now all who repent and believe in Him, turning to Him in faith, will be Save. These are the basic building blocks of the Gospel. There is a God. We were made by Him and we are subject to Him, but we have rebelled against Him and are under His wrath. But He, being rich in mercy, has redeemed us through the blood of His Son, promising that all who believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the Gospel, and we must receive it. That is, we must believe it. But it's not enough simply to believe that it is true. We must also rest in it. That is, we must rest in it for our own salvation. We must believe that He did that for us, and we must entrust ourselves to Him. We must receive, and we must rest. But more than that, we must receive and rest upon Him as He is offered to us in the Gospel. And I think this is key, especially in our culture today. Because many people today, they want to trust Jesus for a salvation He never offered. They want to trust Jesus for some sort of immunity. For some sort of freedom to to live as they want and to to sin without fear of, of consequences. But such a salvation, even if it could be called that, 
is never offered to us in the gospel. Rather, the salvation that is offered to us is that we might enter into his rest, that we might come into his promised land, that we might live as his people, with him as our king. People sometimes wonder if you can have Jesus as your savior without having him as your Lord, and the idea is absurd. Because salvation is to his lordship. You are saved to be a subject of the king because that's what you were created for. That is where your life is found. Better to be his servant than to be a prince elsewhere because you were created by him and and for him and life is in his service. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is to have Christ as my king. For me to live is to be his servant. For me to live is to live as a subject in his kingdom. That's what we were created for. It's when Adam and Eve sought to take the throne for themselves that they brought sin and misery and death into the world. And it is only as we turn from that foolish rebellion and again bow ourselves before the king, acknowledging him as our God, acknowledging him as Lord, acknowledging him as our our king, that we will again find life in him. So you see that that God invites us into His rest. He opens the way through His Son, Jesus Christ. But we must respond to the promise with faith. But if there is a response that is called for, if we must respond to the Gospel with faith, then what does that mean? It means that it's possible to fail to reach it. It's possible not to respond. We we see that in the first generation. They didn't respond in faith, but rather hardened their hearts and continued in unbelief. And therefore, they did not enter that rest. And if we must respond to the gospel with faith, then we must acknowledge that it is possible not to enter into that rest. Rest. And this very possibility is the reason for the author's exhortation. Look again at what he says in in verse 1. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We are to fear because the possibility of not reaching that rest is real. And so what does it mean to to fear? What is this fear that is being called for? Well, well obviously it is not a fear, a servile fear that, that God is somehow capricious or that he won't honor his promises. That's not what we are fearing. Not at all. But but what are the components of this fear? Well, there's there's at least three things that we must see in this fear. First, having this fear means believing that it is possible to fail to reach God's rest. It means regarding that as a real possibility. Or to put it another way, it means not presuming upon the kindness of God. In the first century, many Jews in particular presumed that they could not possibly fail to reach God's rest because they were, after all, children of Abraham. They were members of God's covenant people. How could they possibly fail to reach God's rest? 
Today, many presume they cannot fail to reach God's rest because they have been baptized and are members of a church, even if they haven't been there in a while. And still others presume they cannot fail to reach God's rest simply because they are alive, simply because they are breathing. They are human beings, and God wouldn't dare to judge a human being. He wouldn't dare to to condemn anyone. These are the, the beliefs that people hold. These are the presumptions that are antithetical to fear. And the gospel fear that we are being called to begins with the acknowledgement that we are not saved by default. That we are by nature objects of God's wrath. And that there is nothing we can do about it. It's actually the the first question of of our membership vows. Do you know yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving of His holy wrath? and without hope of salvation, except in His sovereign mercy. That's fear. That's fear that acknowledges that apart from God's intervening grace, we will be lost. It's the gospel fear that we are being called to. It acknowledges the real possibility that we might not enter His rest. But there's more to it than just that, because second, having this fear means acknowledging that failure to reach God's rest would be the worst of all possible outcomes. That failing to to enter God's rest would be the single greatest tragedy that could ever befall us. Or if you want to turn that around and and put it in a positive way, you you could say that entering God's rest is the best of all possible outcomes. That that entering God's rest is the greatest of all treasures. It is the treasure in the field that would cause us with joy to surrender everything else. Because we know the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ our Savior and being found in Him. You see, if you do not value entering God's rest, then even acknowledging the possibility that you might not reach it will not produce in you a proper fear. We must acknowledge that that this is the good for which we were created and that there is no hope, there is no joy, there is no satisfaction, there is no happiness apart from this rest. As Augustine said, he has made us for himself and restless we will be until we find our rest in him. God could give you everything you ever wanted and it would not be what you wanted if it was apart from him. Having what you desire, having the desires of your sinful heart will leave you empty because you were created for him. So this is the the second component of of, of a gospel fear. It is acknowledging that there is nothing else in all of the cosmos. There is nothing in the cosmos. Only the creator of the cosmos can truly satisfy, can, can truly give us the joy that we were created to long for. And of course the third component of this fear is that when you have recognized that it's possible that you might not enter, and it's when, when it's recognized that that would be the greatest of all tragedies, having this gospel fear is what motivates us to count every cost as nothing compared to the surpassing worth of entering into His kingdom. In particular, think about it this way. When you have this gospel fear, you will be willing to endure any trial 
Because no cost will be regarded as too great. No cost will will outweigh the the benefit of, of entering into his rest. And not only will you be able to endure every trial, but you will be able to resist every temptation because nothing offered to you to to turn you to the right or to the left could possibly compare with the wonder of of what is ahead of you on the way that God has set before you. Every temptation can be resisted. Every trial can be endured because you have a gospel fear that says my satisfaction can be found only with Him and His kingdom. And therefore, I will do whatever it takes in humble reliance upon His grace to arrive at home in the new heavens and in the new earth. I will do whatever it takes. I will strive even. And we'll talk more about that next time. I will strive to enter His rest. This is what we are being called to. This is the fear that we must nurture. This is the fear that we must develop. And we develop this fear by meditating upon these things. By meditating upon the wonder of the promise that is set before us. By by meditating upon the very real possibility that, that we would miss it if we did not cling to Christ. And by turning to Him as our only hope. Not once at the beginning of our Christian life, but again and again and again, day by day as we remember that He is the one who began a good work in us. And He is the one who will bring it to completion. By His power, through faith, we will be kept for the inheritance that is being kept for us in heaven, that imperishable, undefiled, indestructible inheritance that is ours in Christ, that is ours by faith in Christ, that is ours only as He keeps us in faith. And therefore, let us fear. Let us fear to turn to the right or to the left. Let us, let us fear to abandon Him. Let us, let us fear to drift from Him. Let us in fear cling to Him. Because He is our only hope. He is our refuge. Salvation belongs to Him. And even as the disciples said, where else could we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That is gospel fear. May that fear be in us because the Father says, if in fear we cling to the Son, we shall never be put to shame. Because that is true. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You even for the call to fear, Father. May we never presume that we are okay, but may we always know that apart from Christ we are without hope, but that in Him we are eternally secure. And with this fear, Father, may we say, where else could we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Father, may that be the testimony of our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.